You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association Oklahoma. I'm Andy Moore. On today's episode, we're talking to Dr. Rachel Worsman. Dr. Worsman will speak on Thursday, September 30th at this year's virtual Zero Mental Health Symposium. The theme for this year's symposium is Cultivating Community Connections, and the event is coming up September 29th through October 1st. You can register to attend the event at zerosymposium.org. We'd like to thank two of our sponsors, the Maxine and Jack Zero Foundation, as well as the George Kaiser Family Foundation, for their ongoing support of the Zero Mental Health Symposium. Dr. Rachel Worsman is the Director of Science for Seek Healing, a nonprofit that is providing social connection-based interventions to make individuals and communities more resilient to opioid addiction and overdoses. Dr. Worsman was recently a fellow with the Center for Neuroscience and Society and a postdoctoral research fellow in neurology with the Laboratory for Cognition and Neural Stimulation at the University of Pennsylvania. Her ongoing research addresses the neuroscience of social health and the neuroethical issues arising from biopsychosocial spectrum implications for addiction treatment and policy. You can find her TED Talk, How Isolation Fuels the Opioid Epidemic. You can find her TED Talk, How Isolation Fuels the Opioid Addiction, on the TED website. She'll be interviewed by Isetta Gibson, who is Director of Clinical Services for Mental Health Association Oklahoma. Let's listen in. The mental health download starts now. Hi, good morning. I'm Azetta Gibson. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Worsman. How are you doing today, Dr. Worsman? I'm doing great. It's really good to see you. Good to see you too. Can you touch on your research into the neuroscience of loneliness? Sure. So um, one of the things, uh, there's a lot of other neuroscientists who have really, really dug deeply into loneliness and putting the picture together. um, For my work, what really stands out is that the experience of loneliness changes circuits in the brain, particularly circuits in the brain that are um, not only essential for social health and our ability to feel connected to one another, which you'd expect, right? But it turns out those circuits also overlap with circuits that are really heavily involved in addiction and habitual action and motivation. And so loneliness really has a global impact on mental health. What what we're thinking, the hypothesis is that it's doing, and there's some evidence from animal studies and human neuroimaging studies, is that the experience of certain types of loneliness and social isolation lead to this hypersensitization of our brain's reward system. So basically what happens is you're taking um, somebody and, you're, and, and when they're hungry for social connection, when you introduce um, a particular drug of reward or even something else, you know, something else that's rewarding, right? Sugar is really rewarding in the brain, anything like this. And your brain is going to respond absolutely over the top with a reward signal to that. So in a sense, what might be happening with with the epidemic of loneliness is it's become easier for these circuits to get off whack. It's become easier to develop addictions. And it's probably also having, in as much as some of these circuits are also involved in, in, motivation, the ability to feel connected, depression and other 
um, mental health diagnoses, they also be related to loneliness. Another thing about the experience of loneliness is that it has a unique relationship to trauma. So the experience of trauma um, creates a sense of isolation. And so um, in as much as trauma inhibits our ability to really connect and feel safe and, and, and experience this with other people, there's this synergistic effect where we get these health problems, right? And it's not just mental health problems, it's chronic health problems too, right? Like related to adverse childhood experiences. So you could really call loneliness the biggest public health crisis that we have right now, uh, because it really has the ability to either um, make worse or, or foil a lot of our attempts to treat um, and help people to recover from some of their struggles. And I definitely agree with that. We, we have a lot of housing here and we've just seen the impacts of the pandemic um, on, our, on our, our clients we serve. How has the pandemic, would you say the pandemic has maybe increased social isolation, social isolation and loneliness? Yeah, um, unfortunately the COVID pandemic has been a really spectacular and rather horrific natural experiment to test our hypotheses about these things. So um, certainly it affected isolation, it affected um, people's sense of being lonely. You know, I'm sure you and um, many audience members have experienced, you know, transition from from the office and public settings to Zoom for their practices, for their social interactions for a year before things opened up a little bit more. And there's, You know, we've learned a lot about effective models of connecting over these platforms, but there's just something about spending time in each other's spaces, right? That does something something chemically to us. You know, we don't necessarily have the technologies yet to reproduce some of the hormonal things that happen when we're feeling connected in the presence of somebody. I mean, here's an example, right? You can look at my eyes. So for for the audience, we can see each other's um, faces even though you can't, but I'm on Zoom here or or whatever video platform we're on and you can't see my pupils, right? You can't see if my pupils are getting larger or smaller, right? And there's actually parts of our brain that are processing this very subtle information like pupil size in order to give us information about how connected we are to somebody else. When you can only see me from the shoulders up, you're not getting that. And as a result, you're not neurochemically and hormonally getting the effects of social connection in the same way. So what we've seen is that people who had predispositions to things like addiction, depression, may have crossed the threshold. You know, They may have been social drinkers who, with a tendency to overindulge, and then they started drinking in an alcoholic pattern during the pandemic. Um, you know, stress baking became a thing, and then stress baking became stress binging for a lot of people. Um, and it's not so easy to just put down when things opened up again. So there's a lot, um, a lot of evidence. We've had increased deaths of despair, um, suicides. All of these things are going up. So we're really seeing what happens when we're starved for that connection. You know, within an environment of anxiety and fear, um, and it's not. You know, with this particular audience, it's really, it's not just the clients, it's its ourselves as well. You know, those of us who are, who are therapists, who are treatment professionals, who are community workers and builders, um, the level of burnout, and there's been nobody around um, to facilitate healing for the healers. And 
So, you know, it's just this cascade of, of difficulty. Um, and so I think we've just seen, you know, in any good experiment, any good science experiment, right? You wanna have a baseline and then you wanna change something, right? You wanna add a condition in and you wanna see a change in a certain direction. And then in order to test your hypothesis, you're gonna wanna, you're gonna wanna move back um, and reverse that and, and see an effect in the opposite direction. So right now, unfortunately, we have that first part of, of a scientific experiment where we've seen just the effect of um, these negative effects, the damage that's been done. Um, the flip side to that is now we have an opportunity as there's been so much more awareness about the harm that isolation and loneliness has caused to really be innovative with creating communities and creating technologies. And I don't mean electronic technologies, I just mean, you know, procedures and methods for fostering human connection. And then we can really just, you know, test and observe what can happen as we heal from this as well. So I like to point people towards the fact that yes, We've seen some really negative stuff, but we also have a really unique opportunity right now to demonstrate to the world just what kind of a value at amplifying recovery, addressing interpersonal and relational health has. And I definitely agree with all of that. Being a substance abuse counselor, I back in the, the day when I was out in the field more, um, we would just do things like walks, just being involved with people, touching people, sometimes just Give them a hug, high five, or I'm so sick of this elbow bump. I'm an extrovert, so this is the pandemic has been a struggle. So I can't imagine if you're an introvert and also struggling with loneliness, depression, and everything else. Um, recently, you spoke about the idea of the disease of addiction as a community level disease. Can you talk about what you mean by that? Yeah. So, this is one of my favorite things to talk about because when we think of neuropsychiatric or neuropsychological problems as diseases, we tend to think of them as things that exist within an individual, right? We, we consider the effect of a person's brain and a person's mind, but what we don't consider is that our brains are embodied, right? We are embodied and our bodies are embedded in cultures, in relationships and in social structures. And so everything that happens relationally and socially um, and to a great extent societally, which is important, particularly um, with identities and, and areas where there's substantially more trauma encountered, is that all of these things actually leave an imprint on the brain. The brain doesn't wire in isolation, you know, and it doesn't just wire with the mind. It's not this like mental um, chemical soup that's just in your skull. My connection with you right now can affect the wiring of my brain. Like, look, like when you're smiling, when we're making eye contact, when we're enjoying a conversation, like I'm having an experience right here. I'm having an experience in my chest, which feels expansive, you know? I, I feel it. And those things are causing neurochemical cascades that are causing conditions in my brain that make it more possible for me to think a certain way in this moment, right? Practice certain thoughts. The point is, is that these things are biopsychosocial entities, right? Anybody who's a clinician has heard about biopsychosocial treatments, biopsychosocial intake assessments, et cetera. The problem is, is that we, we don't often think about what that means for treatment, which is to say that we have really good biological treatments, right? We can give medication, we can help people get exercise, 
We can help people get their nutritional health in order. We've got really good psychological treatments, right? We've got things like cognitive behavioral therapy. We've even got things like EMDR and other trauma treatments. Um, but when we think about the social, we just think about the social determinants of health. We don't often think about relational health. And so what the implications of this are is, it, as you can tell by where our resources and treatment are going, that we're giving lip service to biopsychosocial, but we're really just thinking biopsycho, you know, biopsychological. And what can happen is that when we have dysfunctions in communities, and there's so many different ways communities can become dysfunctional in this way. You know, there was a transition. We used to live in, in multi-generational households. You know, then we moved into nuclear families, but now economic and social and, um, and other oppressive factors um, have broken down nuclear families into even smaller groups. You know, we have, we have children for generations now that, um, in a lot of cases are raising themselves um, or learning from their peers. So these are different ways that, that social conditions have changed. We've also seen manufacturing industries break down. We've seen communities break down. We've seen people's meaning and identity and the way that they connect with the people around them dissolve. Um, we've also seen the effects of having a culture that emphasizes your own personal resources and isolation, you know? We got, you know, if you work hard enough, then you can get whatever you need, right? But, um, but we don't often think about what these relationships really mean for the rest of this. And so with all of this social breakdown, and of course, more recently with um, anything that makes us feel isolated from other people. And you know what? Shame is probably the biggest driver of that. Trauma begets shame, begets isolation. Um, shame, shame messaging. We hear it. Um, we hear the not good enough, not pure enough, not religious enough, not moral enough, not you name it, not enough, right? That's a signal of shame. And this is just part of our culture. And we take it for granted that this is just how we motivate people to do the right thing. But all of these things contribute to people not relating to each other in a way that feeds the neuro neurobiological systems, the food that it needs to stay healthy. So in a sense, what we have, because brains wire in response to what happens between us, between me and another person, between me and my community, between me and my place of work, the locus of the dysfunction is not necessarily only in our brain, it may not even be mainly in our brain, it's between us. And when we can heal what's sick between us, then the brain actually has a chance to use the biological things we're giving it and the psychological tools that we're giving it to actually change. The implications of a biopsychosocial disease is if you're only treating the biological and the psychological, the unmet social relational needs are like a weight. You know, it, 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 it's a weight, it's an anchor and the boat can't move. You know, we can't move to better waters because we're being weighed down. The system is constantly encountering more and more challenges to it. We really need all these things to work together. Wow, that is awesome. I'm like, I'm just sitting here like, oh, I'm so, <laughs> you're, you're speaking my language, the social part. I love that. I absolutely love it. And as a community, we're going to have to get back to being community oriented and, and supporting each other. And you're exactly right. People go to treatment and go to treatment so many times. 
And until they change that social piece, there's no real change. You know, and but we talk about, you know, even with that, right, we're trained to think like until they change that social thing, you know, embedded in the treatment system. And I love this. I'm also a social worker. Um, I don't know if we mentioned that in my bio, but um, and I've worked, you know, around treatment infrastructures and things is there's very much of them. There's, there's, an, there's an us and a them. How do we help them? You know, we're administering treatment to them. There's okay. this distance between us. And it's really like, how do we build community? How do we invite people into community? How do we invite our clients into community? It's a really subtle way of framing things, but it, it kind of reveals our, itself in, in how we talk about things. You know, we're, the truth is, is, is you know, the, the helpers are, are not often any steps much ahead in their own lives of the people that are so, so to speak helping, right? And there's professional ethics involved and disclosure and, and things like that. Um, well, and I think you're, you're right with, we gotta go away from the us and them. We, we have to figure out how to make this a partnership. Like I tell people, I can't tell them what they need. I can listen and try to help them figure out how to get there. But when you, if they don't have a buy-in and if we're just telling them we're not going to see that change because it's our change. It's not theirs. We're not working in a partnership with them. So. And I love how you said that, you know, it makes me think of the trans theoretical model of change, you know, like the stages of change thing, you know, where you go from pre-contemplation, um, contemplation, preparation, things like that. And what actually motivates people around that circle? You know, we focus on the problem, but that doesn't necessarily get anyone there. Um, what we found at Seek Healing, and we can talk more about what we're doing there if you'd like, um, is that there are certain kinds of relational conditions um, that are not necessarily a part of clinical models that really make a huge difference in people finding their own truth and um, finding the motivation and the courage within themselves um, to do something maybe that they haven't done before. And yeah, let's talk about um, what you're, tell us more about Seek Healing and what you all are doing in your community. So the Seek Healing model is geared around creating experiences of meaningful, authentic, vulnerable social connection between individuals um, and the powerful transformative nature of those things. Um, and what it is, is it's a participatory, we call it participatory destigmatization model. So in it, we don't have professionals, we don't have clinicians, we don't have treatment anybody, we just have seekers. Everybody in it is a seeker. And what a seeker is, is a person who is actively, who's committed to actively negotiating and renegotiating their relationship with behaviors or substances that aren't serving their wellness, their well-being, you know, and so um, I am as much of a seeker as anybody else is. Um, one of the things that that we do that we recognize is that we are all doing the best that we can to deal with emotionally painful and uncomfortable experiences anything from the discomfort of boredom to the emotional pain of abandonment or isolation um to the hell of being bonded um to a substance and and feeling um you know feeling without access to free will around anything like that all of these things it turns out we stigmatize some of them more than others, but I guarantee, you know, you can talk, I'll, I'll be, I'll be the first one here, you know, um, 
I'm bonded to sugar. That's that's my that is my drug, right? I can't tell you when I'm active in that addiction how many days I say I can't do this anymore. I just can't do this anymore. You know, I wake up hungover literally from it. I'm going into withdrawal right the first couple of days afterwards and I'm like I am not going to pick this up again because I don't want to have to go through these headaches and these chills and like it's ridiculous. It's it's, it's a mild it's actually a mild form of you know, opioid um, withdrawal in a sense, um, neurochemically. And and so I can experience these same things and I can relate to it on this. You know, everybody has an intention of something they're going to do less. Oh, I'm only going to watch one episode, right? Three seasons of Game of Thrones and like two weekends later, they're like, oh my God, I was supposed to go to work this week. You know, that's not that extreme of a thing. We all have something that we're picking up, that we're doing, that we're binging with, that we're, um, you know, and maybe it's obsessively worrying about other people. Maybe we have, um, maybe maybe we're using um, control with other people as our drug, whatever it is. This is this is not to the point of what we do at Sea Killing, but what, what we talk about and what we understand is that, you know, all there is is harm reduction. And, and some more stigmatized way and some less stigmatized ways to deal with harm reduction, right? Because isolation is dangerous to your health, loneliness, depression. These things are dangerous to your health. Emotional pain is in the brain being processed the same as physical pain. So when we just accept that and accept that we're all on some spectrum of the human condition and we're all not meeting our intentions every single day, it stops mattering so much which of us have been bonded to substances and which of us are lonely and finding ourselves drinking more because we just retired after an entire career and feeling like we have no meaning and we're like, what the heck is going on with this behavior? Or, you know, people who've maybe, you know, been socially isolated or, um, or lonely or felt like they don't fit in for their entire lives. There's really not any difference. And so about a third of our program are people who are in early recovery from, from an addiction crisis, you know, maybe maybe um, meth, uh, alcohol, opioids. Um, about a third are in long-term recovery from something, um, whether drugs or eating disorders or things like that. And another third of the community doesn't have any lived experience with substances, um, but maybe are healing from trauma, maybe are feeling disconnected. You know, we have a, we have a number of parents in the community who have lost children um, to overdoses and want to become connected and want to feel like they're making a difference in changing the conditions that led their children to get so ill. So what we have are um, the basis of what we do is a tool called listening training and listening training um, enables people to connect with other people by really deeply connecting with what their own experience is and being able to communicate and then listen and receive and reflect somebody else's experience without judging or fixing or giving advice, right? Such a simple thing. But when people experience the experience of really being seen deeply with none of those things, truly none of those things, not like we well, should try what I tried or I'm going to share my experience and you're you're you know that I'm really saying you should do what I did, right? You know, when we're not using that, there's there's value in that narrative model. Not get me wrong, that saves lives also. It's it's a part of the ecosystem, but being seen, being understood, that is powerful. And so the rest of our offerings are ways to experience that. So we have connection practices um, that are um, 
they can be theme oriented. People get together and can share on particular things where we can practice it. But but more and more, we've just been having more activities in the community, right? So the listening training um, style of communicating is sort of the basis of the community. But we have, you know, we're in Western North Carolina. It's beautiful here. Um, you know, we have hikes. We'll we'll meet at a tea we'll meet at a tea shop. Um, uh, we've had a couple of campfire connection practices in my backyard um, in the last couple of weeks. Um, and, and all sorts of people you'd never really think about connecting are just there. We have something called the listening line. You know, there's crisis hotlines, but what about a line for people who don't have, you know, I think what it was, it, um, I was doing a, a talk, was doing an interview, um, uh, Johan Hari and I, um, with an interviewer and, and Johan, I think was, was relating the statistic that one in five people, um, say they have, they have nobody to talk to. They wanted to talk. So the listening line is, you'd be waiting for a bus, you know, call the listening line, be like, hey, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm like, I'm waiting for the bus, you know, I had a really stressful morning. And 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 these connection practices are there. We're, we're basically trying to meet this need and we're meeting it so, so successfully that um, the demand is absolutely rapidly outstripping um, the resources. So now, now we're getting creative about about ways that we can scale this into other communities as quickly as possible. Oh, I think it would be great in other communities. I'm a church girl, so at church we're like, we have this good stuff here. We got to get it out. Y'all got to get it out. Um. <laughs> you know, up here, churches are a really big part of of the social infrastructure in Western North Carolina. Of course, we've got new communities that we're seeding. We want, um, and we do, you know, we engage with churches. They're like, this is wonderful. Let's have a connection practice, you know? Um, this is seeing people with love and non-judgment, you know, that that is really what most of our religions are about, you know? Yeah. And mutual, you know, humility with regards to the things that I, I'm struggling with as a human and you're struggling with. And sometimes I am under-resourced and I need help from you. And sometimes, I have, um, you know, a, a lot of resources internally, externally, and I can be the one to to um, to be able to help meet somebody else's needs. So it's really mutualistic, but it's, but it's so important to do that without judgment, without hierarchy. You know, just to be mindful of how power structures work in communities like that. That's a lot of the work that we've been doing um, to sort of deconstruct some of that and make it um, make it a place where where as many people can be safe as possible. Agreed. So you have so, so much information. I'm, I'm super excited. So I'm like, yay, you've, you've got a fan in me, even bigger fan. Now, what, can you give us a sample of what you'll touch on at the symposium during your keynote? Yeah. So really what I've been talking about with, um, with this biopsychosocial call to actually meaningfully address the social is, um, is something that we've called, we're calling the relational model of social health. And so the title of my talk is going to be There's No Mental Health Without Social Health. And so I'm going to be talking about um, what's been missing in a lot of ways from clinical treatment. Um, talk about this relational model of social health. What are the essential ingredients of it? How do we practically implement that? What's available um, for everyone that might interact with, a, with another human being, right, from clinicians to community members? practical tools, um, access to trainings and the kinds of things that we can do to help 
get connection practice, literally connection practice into our own lives. Um, we're gonna talk a little bit about um, our, our original pilot program and what some of the results we've had. So I didn't get into this, but we do have a vein um, of seek healing that provides extra resources to people who have recently experienced um, an overdose crisis. And, um, you know, so these are um, usually people that from, from whether, whether it was um, meth or otherwise, um, or, or opioids, um, have encountered fentanyl, have experienced overdoses, or recently out of treatment, things like that. Um, and we had an 87% rate of people um, being able to meet their intentions for substance use and non-use at six months and then at a year. And so I wanna talk about some of what, what happened there, what we're seeing there, what we're seeing in the community in terms of recovery and how our model has evolved to encompass more mental health than just addiction. And so I'm gonna give a preview um, of a lot of that and hopefully give some real information that people can take back into their practices, whether they're, whether they're therapists, clinicians, or community workers or otherwise. Oh, that sounds absolutely amazing. So I will just encourage anyone, if you have not signed up for the symposium, you need to do so because you're going to miss out. I was just going to say, I'm going to try to make it as interactive as possible too. So bring your, bring your vulnerable selves and, and we should have, we should have a good, a good experience together. All right. Well, we thank you so much for sharing with us today and look forward to hearing you at the symposium. You've been listening to the Mental Health Download. Our guest today was Dr. Rachel Worsman, and she was interviewed by Isetta Gibson. Dr. Worsman will be speaking at the Zero Mental Health Symposium on September 29th. This year, the symposium will be held virtually. And as a reminder, you can register for the event at zerosymposium.org.